Hey, just a heads up. The episode you're about to listen to is about Perfect Blue, directed by Satoshi Kon and written by Sarayuke Murai, based on the novel by Yoshikazu Takeuchi and translated by Rika Takahashi. Some relevant trigger warnings for this movie include depictions of rape, stalking, violence, and mental illness. And our hosts have ranked this movie as existentially disconcerting. If you'd like to learn more about the movie discussed this evening, please visit our website, progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, for show notes and transcripts. After the spooky music, we'll talk about the movie in full, so be forewarned, there will be spoilers. Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we own horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about a movie I think we've literally been referencing since the first episode, and I didn't even see it until now. Satoshi Kon's Perfect Blue. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. First, they're here to invade your house and find queer content in all of your favorite movies. My co-host and comic writer, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? I will admit my analysis of this movie might be impacted in that this is such a goddamn mindfuck. I don't necessarily know what happened or what is real or what isn't real or if I'm real. Success. Assuming that uh, we are in fact real, we also picked her up at the spooky crossroads of anime and sexy monster media. It's co-host and comics artist, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? Uh, I will quote this film. By saying, why do all psycho thrillers made in Japan turn out this way? <laughs> <laughs> well, so before we jump into it too much, we're going to do a quick recap. Now, Emily has drawn the short straw tonight to try and make this movie make sense to everybody. So, Emily, take it away. Well, to start, we're going to talk about some of the stats. This is by Satoshi Kone. Now, we may know and love Satoshi Kone for his psychological thrillers and Tokyo Godfathers, but I have discovered tonight that his animation debut, both directorial animation and writing debut, was in fact three episodes of the 1993 JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. There's a free one, Ben, that one's for you. Get the fuck out. Which part? Wait, he was, oh my God, was he on like the, like the OVA? I didn't look up. It had, look, it was either that or the Phantom Blood movie that has never been released. It's it never three been. episodes, and apparently he also did storyboards for another one that was about Iggy the Fool. Yeah, they're part of Dio's world, apparently. Oh yes, the more the most important. Oh yeah, shit, those OVAs are fucking epic if you haven't seen them. Yes, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure does what it says on the tin. You know, it's basically called "Here's a fucked up story," and. Not so much a psychological thriller in the way that Perfect Blue is, but still arguably psychological. To and recommend another podcast, I appeared on an episode of Comics Inebriated, hosted by a friend of the show, Eliana Kangas, and I got mad drunk on tequila and spent about an hour talking nonstop about JoJo's. So check out that episode of Comics Inebriated if you want to hear me have a lot of thoughts about JoJo. Oh my God, I do. The only thing that would keep me from listening to that is the fact that I can't interact with you while listening to it. But other fun fact about Satoshi Kon is he is the understudy of Katsuhiro Otomo, who some of us know from Akira. Apparently, Jeremy has never seen Akira. 
I'm aware of Akira. I've just never watched it. You're academically familiar with Akira. This that's is a guy with where... a bicycle. I mean, a motorcycle. Motor. I'm yeah. clamping down, but that's one of those movies where my reaction is to go like, gasp. You've never seen blank like the obnoxious film bro douche I am. I Listen, my, my excuse is very uh, concrete on this one, which is by the time I was of an age that it was appropriate for me to watch Akira, everybody that I would have watched it with had already seen it because they all watched it before they probably should watch that movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm with you there. I, sh- I watched this movie, Perfect Blue, before I should have because I watched it in 1998 and I was 16 years of age. But anyway, so so the movie is based on a book by uh, Yoshikazu Takeuchi, translated by Rika Takahashi, and it's called Perfect Blue, Kanzen Hentai. Don't be alarmed by the name because that translates to Perfect Blue, Complete Metamorphosis. And now we are going to find out why oh also it starts if, as well. if that is the case i've either been reading anime porn or kafka very wrong <laughs> i don't think you've i don't think that there's a disparity as much of a disparity as you think that there might be alexa google kafka hentai mr sansa fucks and we all know that right okay i'll take your silences and yes okay so let's get into this movie i'm going to explain what happens so perfect blue is about Mima Kitagoe, and she's a perfectly normal, not blue yet, young woman singing for a small-time pop trio called Cham. She has a decent following and incredibly enthusiastic and charming fans. That's sarcasm. But she dreams of more. Or does she? We don't know. Actually, we do. But Mima wants to become an actress. And as she's being encouraged to do so by her agent, Tarakoro, her manager, Rumi, former pop star herself, is intent that Mina should still sing. Meanwhile, Mima is faxed cyber threats after she has announced her final performance with Chan. She lands a one-line cameo in a popular SBU-like crime series called Double Bind. Her one line is, who are you? Which is very important to this film. And she also learns about the internet from Rumi because she has weird fan mail about how they're always watching her room, Mima's room. While Rumi is talking about this at the TV set, uh, Tadakoro suffers a minor but upsetting injury from a litter bomb that's been addressed to Mima. So already off to a great start. So apparently someone has made a Mima fan page, along with a blog that follows Mima's daily routine down her, right down to her grocery list, written in first person. How cute. It's the future. By the way, this is 1997, and Mima is using Netscape Navigator on a freshly unpacked Macintosh Performa. Yes, this is yet another gruesome crime thriller sponsored by Apple. While Mima is being cyberbullied, turns out the remaining duo of Cham has finally hit the charts. Reality begins to break down as fans begin to complain about Mima's minimal acting career, all whilst buying her merch. Classic fans. We see stalker Mr. Mimania, that is his name in the film, Lurking in a totally cool and by no means unsettling way. Tarakoro has been harassing in a less unsettling way, but marginally still unsettling. The producer and writer of Double Bind to give Mima a bigger part, which eventually she does get a bigger part. It's a rape scene. So, sorry, everybody. Rumi and Tarakoro argue over this. Mima agrees to do the scene as the role may be a career breakthrough. Her reflection, however, has doubts. The rape scene is horrific for everyone, including you. Rumi leaves in tears. Reality breaks. Mima dissociates. Her trauma response kicks in as she finally comes home 
She hallucinates that her fish are dead and her idol self, an ethereal glowing version of her perpetually dressed in a cutesy idol costume, comes alive and uh, harasses her before skipping away on streetlights. Then the screenwriter is murdered, brutally, by a boombox in a parking garage, as far as we know. Man, did I relate to the writer getting murdered. Probably shouldn't look too deep into that. Well, I mean, I would hope not for the same reasons, but I don't think you write that kind of stuff. No, I don't. Yes. After the murder, Tadakoto literally tells Mima to smile more. And then she sees her idol self in a nearby car shaming her. She leaves the car and causes a traffic incident. But so far, physically unscathed. Her career is taking off now, though, and she agrees to several interviews. What she says in her interviews conflicts with her blog, however, and her blog is established to be suspiciously connected to Mr. Mimania. Mima then agrees to, photo, to a photo shoot with a notorious photographer known for exploiting his models. She, too, is exploited. It's also horrifying. Her nude photos are published. Mimania tries to buy them all and steal them, just basically taking them out of circulation. And we get that bathtub scene that was referred to in Requiem for a Dream. Reality unravels for Mima, as does the film's linear narrative at this point. We go full meta as Double Bind now has its own movie wherein Mima is a killer with dissociative identity disorder and is treated, or we are treated to a montage of repeating events where she is filming certain scenes complete with characters of Double Bind describing what Mima very well could be experiencing in real life. In the midst of this, the photographer is murdered by Mima? We'll talk about that later. Who is full method and or experiencing multiple psychotic breaks, confusing her identity with that of the character that she's playing and the ghostly idol Mima from her website. The final scene of Double Bind wraps, and the real actual movie that we are watching for this podcast, that is Perfect Blue, sort of kind of resumes a somewhat linear structure as Mima is attacked by Mr. Mimania, who's personally contacted by the, the website Mima, who we don't know who that is maybe, and who is asking him to kill actual Mima, that website Mima says is an imposter. Are you confused? That means it's working. After being assaulted and battered by Mr. Mimania at the actual TV studio and, and Mima's clothing is ripped and it's also very upsetting, Mima fends off Mimania by killing him with a hammer. She is then rescued by Rumi and Mimania's body just disappears like it does. Mima wakes up in her room but realizes it's not actually her room but a different apartment that is an exact copy of her room. Perfectly normal. Mima's idle self appears in a new outfit and it is actually Rumi who exposes herself as the killer. Turns out Rumi killed everybody including Tarakoro and probably the photographer but maybe not Mimania. We're not sure. Mimania and Tarakoro's bodies are stashed together. It's unclear. Rooftop chasing ensues as Rumi, who appears as Mima in her idol self form, pursues Mima, the real Mima, with intent to stab her to death. Rumi is then defeated when Mima steals her wig, that is to say, the Mima wig, on Rumi's head. And Rumi accidentally guts herself on some broken glass. Bleeding, Rumi wanders into the street and is almost run over by a truck whose lights she mistakes for stage lights as she embraces the hallucinatory cheers Mima knocks her out of the way, saving her life. And in our denouement, Rumi is institutionalized, still convinced that she is Mima the pop idol. However, our Mima is fine, and she knows who she is, for sure. This isn't sarcastic, or is it? Any questions? All of them. Okay. 
Yeah. I, I feel like I was watching this and I feel like there's a section at the beginning where you know what's going on and a section at the end where you're like, okay, I think I know what happened. And then there's a good chunk in the middle of it where you're like, I think people are dying. My notes entirely sure. are just constantly being like, oh, okay, so the theme is this. Oh, wait, no, it's this other thing. So I guess it's this. Wait, no, it's not that thing at all. Wait, hold on. Is it the thing I originally thought it was? Nope, it's none of the things. I'm curious as to what any of those things were. Well, just being like the sense of like, oh, okay. It's like, it's the stock. It's what's his face. Edit, edit out the dead air. Mimania. Me, it, Mimania is killing people. Okay. So I get this theme, but is that conflicting with what's... It's weird that, like, I guess him and Mima might agree with, like, the exploitation that she's going through. Oh, wait, no, she's killing them. So, really, it's like a righteous retribution of, oh, wait, no, she's not killing them. It's, wait, oh, it's Rumi. I don't know what this means anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it was interesting to me that I feel like for so much of it, I was like, oh, my God, this is a pretty by the book stalker thing where, you know, he's he just keeps showing up places and he keeps the there's the letter bomb and this and that and the other. And you're like, oh, well, you know, he, he thinks she's talking to him through the computer to the point that like where he actually dies and, you know, fighting her and he's telling her that Mima, the real Mima is telling him these things over email. You're like, oh, it's a it's a delusion. This man is insane. And thinks this this person who he has a, a an obsession with is actually contacting him. Like, and then it's like, no, actually, he was being manipulated by somebody into thinking that he was doing, that he was saving this other Mima from this imposter. I mean, it's like any, there's an, I guess there's an element of like the whodunit when you go back and you realize like, oh, that throwaway scene of like Rumi teaching Mima how to like, how to set up the computer. That's the movie. Like, that's the plot. Like, that's the twist right there. Like, that's the foreshadowing is like, look, it's Rumi who knows how computers work. Yeah. She's the one who knows what email is. Like, and I know this is just because it's 1997, but it always makes me laugh. It laughs when I watch like Seinfeld episodes and they talk about the internet. It makes me laugh here when Mima's reaction to the internet is, oh, yeah, that thing that's popular these days. I've heard of that. <laughs> and I, yeah. And I, I appreciate also that, like, I love it when things in shows are named things that mean something that like when you think about it, you're like, oh, that's a that makes sense. Because that like double bind is an expression that means, uh, you know, when a person is confronted by two irreconcilable demands or has like two two choices that they they don't want to choose either of them. So with double bind, I do want to just briefly because there's not much to talk about and it's weird that the movie brings up at first. How does this movie deal with trans issues? There is a throwaway line in Double Blind where they're just like, probably a murderous trans person. That's what I think. And I don't know if this is supposed to be like a Japanese adaptation of Silence of the Lambs or what, but it's kind of unnecessary to just be like, yep, murderous trans people, stereotypes. Okay, just background. Well, I think that's a very valid criticism because of the influence of Silence of the Lambs and how, you know, and also like the story about Gein and stuff like that, where you have these sensationalized stories about killers who remove the skin in order to create, to become something else. And in this case, these stories that we hear are all, these guys took off women's skin and became women with them. And it's not about that at all. It's not about gender at all. 
or identity. And Silence of the Lambs is like, this is what this guy's doing, but it's not that. But we're still going to talk about it like he's, we're still going to show him sexualizing himself as a woman, even though Hannibal Lecter's like, he's not transsexual, by the way, TM, copyright. I um, constantly waver back and forth on how much credit I give Silence of the Lambs for its ass-covering asterisk on that. Yeah, I mean, I've read the book and it's it's similarly, like, too subtle. But, you know, I think that if you're going to choose a situation, maybe they were going for it. And of course, in 1997, we don't have the same amount of respect in media that we see in media of trans issues. That's not an excuse. Yeah, because Silence of the Lambs would have come out within like five years of this movie's production. Yeah. And like, it was definitely in the air. Yeah. We're going to talk about like, I mean, stuff that was somewhat contemporary. Ace Ventura came out in 1994, and that has possibly the worst handling of a, a of trans character. It does. I just yeah. but, I love the idea that Satoshi Kon was specifically influenced by Ace Ventura Pet Detective. <laughs> I mean, I don't love that idea, but tr- Satoshi Kon is interesting, too, because Satoshi Kon does tackle trans issues a lot with Tokyo Godfa- Godfathers in a big way, and not in terribly a delicate or super well thought out way but you know for the time not absolutely it's not like ventura (laughs) look this isn't like part of the plot which almost makes it weirder it's just some like it's just like a little casual drive-by transphobia yeah definitely more drive-by than the fat phobia that we get and the the sort of weird representation like this movie critiques expectation like image expectation for women in media but then also uses it to dehumanize characters. Yep. So this movie I could mean, not lean harder into ugly people are evil. Yeah. And that's the thing too. wrote some notes down about, about that because when you have a film that is animated, there is a conscious decision to design these characters and make them uncanny. And the depiction of Rumi and Mimania is pretty problematic when you think about that jeremy you were going to say something about well i mean i was gonna say i think with rumi i feel like the depiction is generally fine until it gets to the part where she is stressing as this other character but yes i would say like fat phobia and satoshi Kone are no strangers i mean i've seen paprika and like they make a point of again coming back around in that movie and saying no this fat guy he's a person with feelings but they spend most of the movie going look at his fat pig just eating all the time he's so eaten look at him eating in this scene and this scene yeah it's definitely not sensitive but there's not a lot of consideration when trying to make these characters seem monstrous it has a real like 80s these disgusting people are people too i mean they're disgusting but they are people you should realize that yeah like i mean it's on paprika yeah there's this every look the contrast between Rumi as Mima being this like very ethereal bouncy gravityless being and then you see real Rumi being like this panting sweating gasping like figure that like like it's very effective from a cinematography standpoint but you know it's also uh like we said uh not not very effective cinematography wise not very effective if we are trying to not demonize overweight people. I think that the 
most offensive part of that is when Remy reveals herself in the outfit because there is this they make a point of making a huge contrast between how she looks in real life and the ideal that she is supposed to be representing which yeah, Remus like, sees that um, is full-on our reaction is supposed to be oh my god look at this giant person wearing this outfit she has no business wearing that is like big person in skimpy outfit this is shocking and horrifying on an inherent level and it's like that movie yeah also yeah. because Rumi's kind of rocking it and like it's just like buff girl like going on like yeah I mean it's not I mean, aside from the murdery insane part but you know yeah whenever like, you ever you know we've all had to brush that to the side some point in order to feel good about ourselves <laughs> or our insane murder aspect of ourselves <laughs> Man, look, we are we are recording this episode after a week. Yeah, that's yeah. Let's talk about women's issues. Could oh my be, god, could be any week at this point. Honestly, yeah. it's bad. It's bad out there, folks. Which is why you know, with a movie like this, it's a little bit difficult to not come in real hard on it, especially it being it involves such, like explicit rape scenes. But I will say that the once you get past some of these initial presentation like you said cinematography in this movie is really good and also everything that is supposed to be horrifying is horrifying the problem is i think with depiction is when you have someone drawing it and you have something that is representative of an idea like mima who is very idealized in the way she looks especially compared to all the other characters because Rumi still has, even though like she's normally pretty cool, she does have a little bit of uncanny valley going on in her face. The movie really likes to like use a like fish lens angles on Rumi and like really try to like emphasize like to me, I thought they really oh, tried to overemphasize like how far apart her eyes were. Yeah. Like, and stuff like that. Like they they definitely choose unflattering angles. Well, and they do that with a lot of other characters, too. But Eddie is the um, actress that Mima is uh, working with, who plays the lead detective in Double Bind. And, of course, Mima's partners in Cham, all of them have this sort of same anime girl, anime woman kind of... Physicality? Physica yeah, physicality. I just completely lost the word right now. Proportion. That was the word I was looking for. Although it's interesting because there is a scene where they have these characters next to an actual anime drawing when we have some characters at a comic book shop to really enforce the disparity between drawn ideal and like the real life of this film. I did enjoy that they had to stop and think like, how do we show that something is an anime in a world that is anime? Yeah, I mean. And not just like live action anime, but like anime anime, anime yeah. squared, multiple fictional levels of anime. Yeah, and and watching that in 1998 was eye-opening for me because I was like, okay, so this is something, like, someone gets this, at least, because of a lot of things that have to do with depiction of characters in, in uh, the comics and anime, but that's... This movie delivered some of the biggest anime mindfucks since I was, like, 10 years old and, like, two-thirds of the way through the series they are like, oh, yeah, the kids from Digimon all live in Japan. And my America is <laughs> like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> We're 30 episodes into this show. You never thought to mention that everybody's Japanese? I didn't know that. I'm 10. Dragon Ball's still a year and a half away. <clears throat> they're all eating these really weird donuts, but they look like they're, they're kick-ass. Like, 
Look at those. They're jelly donuts. I don't know. It's mochi or pork bow. The depiction of these characters also can, in certain cases, seem to represent characters of color because you have different like shades of skin tone. And this is a lot more effort than some movies do to make characters very, especially in Japan, where you have a lot of characters where it's just hair color and you have everybody's wearing a, a uniform. I feel uh, like this rape scene, the rape scene that is in the movie that they're making in the movie has so many levels of like shade towards shows like this because like that's where they bring in all of the you know darker male actors are in this scene where they're in a strip club and she's this character is attacked and being raped and it's also like i really like the moment where the actor apologizes to her but like and i don't know to me this movie also felt very damning of the entertainment industry like yeah. this isn't like this isn't supposed to be entirely metaphorical. This is supposed to be this is a real thing the entertainment industry does to people. This is fucked up. Yes. As crazy a mind fuck as this movie is, there's also elements of subtext that's for cowards. Yeah, it is difficult as the rape scene is to watch. It is really artfully done in that like they have this moment of like, yes. This is a scene where the character that she is playing is being raped. She is not being raped. This is a thing she's agreed to do for this movie, but she has agreed to do it under pressure. And it is, it is so traumatizing in the way that not only like that it's, it's filmed, but in the way that like she is forced to go through the same experience over and over and over that there's this moment where the two characters sort of blur and swap to some extent, which is like, I feel like. The movie kind of goes very off the rails in a very intentional way. I feel like this is a cinematic experience that will be replicated if they ever one day make a Sophie Turner biopic and they're just covering the Game of Thrones filming. Oh, God. Yeah. Because, again, like the way this movie is so all about blending like the fictional, the real, like doesn't matter, which is which like it's just so, again, not subtle, like just hammering home, like even having to act out a fictional rave scene can be degrading dramatic exploitative abusive like even if everyone's saying it's okay it is still some real fucked up shit you are making people act out yeah and she is assaulted she is battered in that scene you know we see her clothes being torn and things like that which actually you know happens and you know you think about scenes like that in these films and in real films where you have a very upsetting sequence of events, how does an actor separate themselves from that? In the case of this particular movie, I thought it was effectively surreal because you had the shot, like what was happening during the actual scene, and then you had them in between takes. So it was this really like this whiplash of here's a traumatic thing happening oh, we have to cut right now because the guy can't get his fly open or whatever. Yeah, like, and this is maybe why, like, I need to see the movie at least two more times in order to fully parse it. But, like, I felt like who, how I'm supposed to be feeling or agreeing with, I felt like there was some conflict or I don't know, I mean, or maybe even that's the point, but, like, from Rumi, from Mimania, there's all these elements and themes of, fan ownership, the Madonna whore um, complex, this very Puritan 
culture and that it's just a very inherently like kind of sex negative denying Mima ownership over her body and her lifestyle. But then at the same time, she is legitimately being sexually exploited by so many people in her life. Like, what the fuck? How am I supposed to feel about like what they're arguing versus what Mima's putting herself through? There's some lines delivered in these scenes where when a character says something and just me watching it and I will go, fuck, that's grim. (laughs) There's the scene where they're filming the rape scene and the director's like, yeah, I know it wasn't really what we wanted to do. Like we would have liked to film this in a real club, but you know, it's so hard to like get the permits and stuff to do that. And it's like, what? (laughs) Okay. That's horrifying because I can see a thousand television directors having that thought process. The meta of this movie is so good because it does have that razor edge critique of the industry. This also addresses the pressure of Mima too, because she wants to become an actress. But, you know, it's just like these breakout roles where there's this whole idea in this culture of young women having to agree to being exploited if they want to make it in this in the industry. I will say that's one hell of a behind the scenes, though, like promotion role. It's like, hey, we cast you for one line and we decide to make you the main villain of the show. That's like, damn, you like you fucking good. I mean, yeah, oh, again, all the scenes bad, but it reminds me of like Gus Fring, how it's like, oh, we came and you came on to be an actual chicken restaurant guy. And then we made you the main villain. Well, there's a lot of it's not nepotism, but there's like a lot of like work politics going on because Mima's manager is is continuing to like stress and her essentially harass the writer and the producer of the show in order to get Nima a bigger role. And so, and she goes through this moment of like, everyone is pissed off because she doesn't have a big enough role, but then everybody's also pissed off that she's no longer in Cham. And then Cham is now hitting the charts and she's not in Cham anymore. And that moment of uncertainty is what contributes to her agreeing to something that she's not really prepared for. Um, What this movie does so, so well is capturing Mima's intense sense of being so overwhelmed of her breakdown, of of her losing her stability, and of her just feeling like no matter what she does, she's doing it something wrong. Yeah, and that delayed reaction to trauma. That was something that I felt incredible incredibly relatable because when you go through something and you're kind of keeping up your visage and then she goes home and she starts to kind of lose her that's the where she goes home and the fish are all dead and she just loses her shit and starts screaming into her bed now how did the fish die was that real roomy did roomy kill the fish as well the fish did not die the fish were not dead yeah after she stops screaming and she looks up and they're alive after all the yeah. fuck is up with those fish? Fish, get your shit together. <laughs> I'm just saying, if my cat was like, eh, I'm dead, and then he turned out not to be dead, I'd be like, I, you gave me a heart attack, cat. What the, all the, what the fucks? It was a hallucination. She was dating uh, because she also then started talking to herself and then herself came out of the computer and was like, are you telling me that's more likely than that this is an elaborate fish prank? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Darren Aronofsky, there's a couple of shots from this that are definitely lifted into uh, Black Swan. I'm sorry. It could not be more clear that that man owes his entire fucking career to this film. I always knew he took influence from it. 
I did not realize watching it, I'd just be like, oh, here's just all of Darren Aronofsky's career. Here's everything he has ever done in this one movie that he did not make. <laughs> yeah, like the scene where she is riding on the train and her own reflection turns and she doesn't is like, it's in Black Swan. And the scene where all of the posters start of her start talking, like that's in Black Swan. I mean, there's so many iconic yeah. moments, like the bathtub, roomy Mima, like with the blood down her face. In the beginning with Mimania, like holding like his hand and like holding her like she's like a ballet figurine. This is a supremely directed and cinematographified movie, a word that is definitely real. I believe you. Also, the parallel between the mother and daughter in Black Swan and Rumi and Mima in this movie, where the mother in Black Swan was a former ballerina and she's trying to live vicariously this life again through her daughter. And, and Rumi is also doing that through Mima. Aronofsky, you fuck. Yeah, and Rumi is clearly the closest thing that Mima has to a, a mother. I guess we don't know anything about her family. She's just lived in an apartment by herself. She talks to her mother at the beginning of the film, but Ben, you wanted to say something. Well, I really want to talk about what to me was the biggest, I'm sorry, what the fuck of the whole film, which was Mimania's voice. Was anyone else extremely not expecting that voice for that character? Did you, did you watch it in Japanese? Yes. Okay. His voice in English is way crazier. He's like, Mima. When I first watched it, I watched the shit out of this movie when it first came out. However, it was a, an edited blockbuster version. So. Oh, boy. Yeah, so it did not have as much of the rape scene. It did so were you just like, why did that perfectly nice photographer man get murdered? They didn't show do anything exploitative. They had very meaningful cuts, and they also didn't show her, like, stabbing the shit also, out of him. How much of this movie can you cut? It is, like, 75 minutes long. Yeah, it was a short version, but I was still super into it. So I saw it a lot, so I could kind of get the plot. It's now, I've had time to sort of like, figure out the plot. I definitely had like a voice in my head that I was imagining and it was not Mickey Mouse level squeaky. <laughs> yeah, he had a very, very mundane voice, which I think is the best thing they could have done because Girl. he looks very not normal. Uh, mm. Yeah, no. and, and there's a lot like when we talk about progressive politics in terms of like disability and things like that. I I don't know if that what specifically his features cross over into, but he's definitely supposed to be monstrous looking and dehumanized in this movie. And yeah, he is a monster, but... Yeah, there's a straight up obsessive nerd equals hideous gargoyle monster. He has some features that would be consistent with having Downs, but like not enough that you're like, oh, this character has Down syndrome. Like, yeah, enough I'm like, also glad that this movie isn't trying to connect. Yeah. That character does something specific like that, because if so, if it had been, it would have been a real yikes. Really Speaking of like, yikes, what was that techno music during the fight between Mimania and Mima? It was who was like, yup, hit that techno. We've had no other techno in the movie, but we're playing it real hard in the climax. It's, you know, I don't know if they use it before. But I would assume it has something to do with the fact that fight takes place on the strip club stage. He is trying to take advantage of her and, and kill her on the same, like, place on the stage where her character is raped. No, that rape scene, the second, 
rape scene or the almost rape scene. That kind of bothered me on a thematic level because the first one, you have both really harsh critique of the entertainment industry as well as a big advancement of like this trauma and fiction reality blurring the lines between what's real, what's not real, and if any of it matters. This second rape just feels like shot, like trying to do a shocking brutality. And also from a character standpoint of Mimania, I don't understand how this fits his characterization of trying to preserve Mima or trying to like bring her back to like, pure, like innocence or purity or even just get rid of this imposter. It's not elegant, but I do think it does say something about the hypocrisy of these kinds of like crazy stalker fans when they're trying to preserve an ideal, but also, you know, it's trying to have the cake and eat it too. You know what I mean? Where they're like, I want to preserve this ideal and this purity, but I also I want her to be well, Maybe this is just because oh, I've watched too many fucking cop shows and I'm looking at that being like, this doesn't fit the serial killer's profile. Well, and also you have he's changed. He's changed the ceremony. The Madonna horse thing where he doesn't he believes this is not Mima. This is an imposter Mima that is trying to ruin Mima's reputation. Yeah. And like sully her. So he's sullying her back, I guess. This is one where like, again, with the first rape scene, ugh, first rape scene, not what terrible phrase, terrible phrase to come out of my mouth. But again, like it advanced the theme and characters and plot. This one, like, what does him trying to rape her there add to the plot or intensity or emotion that isn't already achieved by him trying to gr brutally murder her? Like, it's enough that he's just trying to stab her a bunch of times. I, I don't think it needs this extra level of just sexual violence. Like, it, that felt unnecessary to me. I agree. I agree that it was not necessary. I mean, the fandom hypocrisy thing is like, the only reason that I can see that it would fit, but it, I mean, I, still, you don't need it. I think, and I mean, this is not unlike stuff we discussed with Doctor Strange, although thankfully not a bunch of rape scenes in Doctor Strange. It feels like a case where the creator wanted something to happen that reinforced a theme and an idea in the movie, which is like, it's not a coincidence that they're in the same space, but she is in this case reclaiming her agency by you know fighting off this fan by killing this fan when previously she has been you know even from the first scene people are throwing things at her and she's like come on guys let's all just be nice and have a good time okay i get what you're saying there like it brings a circle it's a imagery of it's a full circle yeah. okay yeah and and i also you know, think it's interesting because they they do a thing that i think goes along with that with her and rumi where when Mima looks into a mirror, she sees the fake her. She sees the idol of her. And when Rumi looks into a mirror, she sees the real Rumi. And whereas, you know, she's imagining this Mima version of her that she is cosplaying as, basically. And that ends up being part of what throws her off as she's chasing her as she sees the reflection and sees the real her in the mirror. And it has this, it has a, a real interesting something to say about where both of those characters are mentally well there's a bit right at the end of that battle between rumi and mima where mima is looking in the mirror and she sees herself as she is and then she also sees rumi as she is and that sort of helps her remove the illusion and then that's when she removes the wig 
from Rumi's head. And then yeah. Rumi's sort of lost her illusion now for herself and scrambles to regain it. But Is anyone else surprised that Rumi lived? A little bit. When I first saw it, yeah. I was not expecting Rumi to live. I did like that Rumi lived. Yes, again, like that's a bit of compassion towards her and showing like humanity that I wasn't expecting. Like that they actually, that the movie kind of ends with like, this is a victim of mental illness that you should sympathize with, which I will commend the movie instead of being like, look at this fat, crazy monster. Like, aren't we glad that she's like dead forever? Yeah. I definitely appreciate that the movie found that humanity and compassion for Rumi. I think it says a lot about sort of our, our main character as a person. The Mima goes and puts herself at risk to save Rumi at the end because there's definitely like, as I was watching it, I was like, you don't know her shit. She yeah, had to jump to a truck for her. Like, there was definitely a moment where I was like, oh, fuck, is this movie so dark it's going to end with like Mima just getting wrecked by this like truck and now like delusional Rumi is the only Mima left and that's how the movie ends. I'm like, that's too dark. No, it wouldn't do that. Would it? <laughs> yeah, so... Another thing I wanted to talk about with the film in terms of identity is I thought that it was a very almost frighteningly accurate prediction of the identity crisis of having an online persona or a media persona. And yeah, this, this movie, movie feels way out of its time. Yeah, incredibly prescient. Like yeah. uh, online personas, online harassment, toxic fandoms, fandom ownership, like online abuse, like wow is this movie crazy ahead of its time like for a movie that like where the main character supposedly doesn't know anything about the internet this movie more than almost any other 90s movie correctly predicted where the internet would go yeah and they, unfortunately she didn't get in any hacker typing battles with his other his other on the internet oh no like, <laughs> to me one of the most haunting images and just like what i thought was like wow like such a great like rock bottom of just how absolutely Mima's like has no grasp on reality that she can rely on is like when she's reading the blog of her stalker to know what she did that day. Yeah. That, that whole segment where like something horrible happens and then she's filming and then like the director yells cut and she is suddenly in her bed waking up on like another take and it's like wait where what happened where is she like what did we miss this movie is such an effective mind fuck yes and also really accurate at portraying not just like i was talking about the trauma delay but also like when you're in the midst of working on something really really intense or you're in the midst of like you haven't slept a lot and you've been running around all day you know i can imagine that it feels like this sometimes where you're like, what day is it today? Yeah. The only thing that I can use to tell how much time has passed is Twitter. Sound design in this movie is rad. That weird techno of the Mr. Mimania chase is a little bit odd, but we're in this age between 1989 and 1999 where we have Japanese feature films that have these very cacophonous soundtracks that add to a surreality or like, ethereal atmospheric quality like the Akira soundtrack was weird and cool and the Ghost in the Shell soundtrack was weird and cool and there were a lot of people screaming and then this one there's some 
weird screaming and moaning. But it starts out with this like cutesy little pop song playing as sort of a theme through the movie. At one point, it heralds the death of the screenwriter as he opens the uh, elevator door and it's just this boombox, very beautifully shot sequence too. I appreciated how bad the sound quality from that boombox was. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's why we don't do CDs no more. (laughs) In the, the very beginning, this movie starts out with like a Sunday afternoon Sentai show with Cham like playing after that. And there was this like really weird sound that was going on in the back of it and it was like this kind of constant like a moaning sound and brett was watching the movie with me he's like wow this is really interesting like this is we have this cute like daytime pop show with these characters in cute outfits but it still feels very strange and like unsettling turns out our dishwasher was running (laughs) um but the rest of the movie there are points where it does sound like your dishwasher is running so it was a bit of a serendipitous situation there that scene at the beginning there's some weird like hands across the audience that would like make sense if it was live action but in animation just seems so weird yeah it's just like it's like somebody put a camera in the middle of the park and just slowly slid across the crowd but they animated those people they weren't just there like they, they had to choose these like shots and these these people walking through. Is is I was just like, this is such a weird sequence where they're That's just it. like we're overhearing bits of conversation about Cham and about the girls, and it's like, what is he doing? It's so strange. It's an interesting thing with Satoshi Kon, and it's to also name drop Evangelion again. Like Hideaki Anno does this too in Evangelion, where. You have an animated movie or show that is directed like a live action show. And in this case, you know, it's to the creator's credit because especially with TV shows, you have this kind of rule of thirds or like very deliberate placement of characters where you don't have a lot of animation, but it still really gets the point across. Um, You think in this case, the rule of thirds is that I only understand what's happening a third of the time. (laughs) I mean, that is also... But yeah, so this movie does a really good job of developing a, just a scary ass atmosphere and disorienting and to the movie's credit. Like this isn't one of those films where you're like, okay, whatever, David Lynch, although I love David Lynch. But in this case, there was really solid decision making and making the narrative start to break down as the reality. So we and Mima together are struggling. Yeah, we're really in this with her. How about though? When they are ta- when the other members of Cham are talking about how much better they are as a duo, knowing full well that Mima is fucking like six feet away and right just in the other room. Oh yeah, well, then, say it. It's their agent the that manager. says it. And they seem very unbothered by all of this. In fact, they seem excited to see Mima when she comes to visit them at the radio station, despite the fact that she runs away screaming because she. She sees herself already there. Hey, Mima, she's like, oh, my God. Runs away. They have no reaction. They're just like, okay, that was always an option. Bye. Well, they also, there's a point where they slut shame her for accepting the photography deal. That she is oh, yeah, that's there. right. Yeah, that was, that's. Like, they, right. again, like, between celebrating being the duo and God, that, and, okay, that's real. Just the sense of, like, oh, she's going to this photographer that exploits people therefore it's her fault if she gets exploited yeah 
fuck. Oh, this movie. Yeah. Again, like I, it's it's takedown of the entertainment industry and the way it treats people is just so fucking on point. Yeah, it feels like the things that we watched in Scream 3 that we were like, did they know they were doing this? Everything in this movie is like, oh shit, they knew they were doing this. But this movie is Scream 3, but it remembered to actually be a horror film. Scream yeah. 3 wishes it was this movie. It, yeah. This okay. would be Scream 3 if Mima spent like three quarters of the movie not being in the movie. Yeah. Speaking of things that are in the movie, anything else to say about queer representation in this movie? No, I mean, no, we don't even get, yeah, about Rumi being like obsessed with Mima, but it's not really that either. Like, it's the, it's the one thing I wish Max I could, has on this movie. Look, sure. I wish I could spring like a two girl friendship into between like uh, Mima and Ari, but there is not enough screen time between them for me to even like grasp for that straw. Yeah. And I, I wish there was. I wish it was a straw I could grasp, but I can't. Yeah. If we're going to grasp straws, we might as well just be like, yeah, the last the other two members of Jam are, are deeply in love and together. That's why they're so happy about being a duo. Okay, that's canon. Yeah, Mima <laughs> was the only thing keeping them from making out all the time. So as far as class, it's interesting because I don't feel like they go out of their way to say a lot about it. But I do think Emily noted here the apartment that Mima lives in is like, very small very uh run down it's like she's really this is clearly like 20 something's first apartment uh, yeah there's there's really some contrast to be said by just like shoebox like a tiny like a bare a super super narrow studio apartment and it's such a effective contrast between this work she does which puts her so in the spotlight and requires her to project this image of like glamour and utter and totally keeping it together mm-hmm. and you know prosperity and then really what she's actually paid to project that image is barely enough for like a crowded mess of a barely a closet i think it's so interesting the way they project cham as a musical entity that like usually in these things bands are either failing or they're wildly successful and cham is like they're doing okay they're paying the bill it was like they've never charted but you know they have consistent opportunities to do concerts they have enough fans to fill up those opportunities uh, and that seems to be about it because like in those first couple scenes you don't really have the indication that they're like not all that successful but then as it goes on you're like oh i guess they're just doing fine. Like This is one area where, you know, I really don't know what the idol scene in Japan is like or the economics of it, especially what it was like in the early, late 90s. So, like, they struck me as someone who's like, oh, you're on tour, but, like, at just a lot of, like, clubs, nowhere big. But really, like, I don't know. Like, it, it's just a musical culture that, I'm just so ignorant of, I almost don't even want to conjecture. From what I do know, which is limited, the presence of that Super Sentai show is indicative of the kind of shows that Cham is playing. They're playing like mall shows. Yeah, they were doing mall shows. Like Like shopping mall concerts. Yeah. Um, It seemed like they were at that level. The the other thing that I didn't feel like, I don't feel like there's a lot to say about is the racial and social justice in this movie. Emily, you pointed out that some of the characters are drawn a little darker. 
And then there's some stuff going on with facial features, which like, it feels like reading an HP Lovecraft novel where he's like, and their eyes were further apart and a little sunken and slanted. And you're like, this is code for some kind of racism. And I'm not sure what it is like reading this. I'm very clear that this is racism, but like, I'm not sure what kind of racism it is. In the case of this movie, you know, I think a lot of it is, has to do with less to do with race and more to do with like, just what, who characters are and how much we're supposed to identify with them. I think it's all supposed to like feed into the mindset of like people's outsides match their insides. Yeah. It's, and it's also, I think. It is a reaction to the which, like super yeah. idealized anime culture where everybody's like big eye or either which, like we talk. Go ahead, Ben. Again, just if for some reason you think this movie is like, is that how it works? It's not. Pretty people can be very, very mean. And sometimes total uggos are wonderful, wonderful, gentle souls. Yeah, that's yeah, a nice. bit cartoony they, part of this movie. It feels almost like they're starting to play with that with Mimania at the beginning because like he is... He does stand up for Jam. He, you know, stands up against the guys who are throwing shit at them and being obnoxious and gets his ass kicked for it. But also it does turn out that he is a horrible, crazed stalker person who is also being manipulated by another person. But yeah, it it is, I, I feel like strong indication that something about the way he looks is supposed to be indicative of the sort of person he is. Yeah. He's, he's got real frog face. Like, yeah, he looks like like a mythical creature. <laughs> he looks, he does not. He has not a very human face. And it, when I was first watching this, when I was a teenager, I actually thought it was a really cool style. Like I was starting to, I was trying to emulate it, but I wasn't quite aware of what that can fall into in terms of indicating the like his his bodily condition or race or whatever. They make a point of making his teeth like kind of jagged and making that a part of his monstrousness, which is not great at all. Ben, you're muted. Something I want to touch on in terms of mental illness is the one area where I definitely feel like this movie may be trying to have its cake and eat it too is how it deals with dissociative identity disorder. Yes. In that it, you get like the meta in universe being of like, look at this ridiculous like overused story device of like she experienced sexual violence and now she has a secret murder personality while at the same time being like okay but actually the real villain does have a secret murder personality yeah and it's like that's one area where it's like that felt a little bit like a cabin in the woods where it's like okay you're calling it out but you're still just doing it yeah and the understanding of of DID, dissociative disorder, the third is dissociative identity disorder in this is very much a like 90s, early 2000s, John Cusack and identity, like real, I mean, John Cusack and identity, let's not get it twisted, is a few years ahead of this and a worse understanding of DID. But like, this is the same sort of thing you would have seen in our version of Double Bind, which is fucking law and order, like on a, a weekly basis, if you turn that on, like, yeah. Like, this is disassociative identity disorder used in the exact same way it's used in Dexter season six. Yeah. And she literally, the detective in the in Double Bind literally calls it, she's like, it's basically multiple personality disorder. I will say this scene, though, 
where it gets super mindfucky and there's the implication that Mima, the actress, is herself like an alternate personality of somebody else. Like, what a in fact, what a super effectively like disturbing and unmooring scene. Like, God, this movie excels so hard at just being a dark mindfuck. I want your opinion, Forum. Do we think that Mima killed the photographer? No. I think okay. Rumi killed the photographer. Yes. Yes to Mima or yes to Rumi? I, I think it was Rumi. Okay. Do we think that Mima killed Mr. Mimania? Yes. Okay. Well, that I'm not sure about because it seemed like Mimania had like his eye stabbed out, whereas we saw Mima hit him in the side of the head with a hammer. So I wondered if he was just wounded and then Rumi like finished him off once she didn't have use for him. Yeah, I don't remember seeing like. She hits him in the head with the hammer. He lies on the stage. She goes to get Rumi. And by the time she's brought Rumi back, he's missing. And yeah. like his body pops up in the cab later. I think that's a moment where like the plotting doesn't super work. The pacing like it's, it's a real. Because then like, did who killed Tadakoro? Was it Mamania? Was it Rumi? It was Rumi. Okay, yeah. so that's the thing. Like, I, if Rumi killed him, then I think, and again, I'm just basing that she either moved the body or depending on if he had different wounds than we saw, Mima filled in, she might have like finished the job. But again, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it works where Rumi had time to move the body before Mima went and got her. Yeah. I mean, I, I think from a, from what we were talking about before about the way it deals with mental health, but also sort of having it taken, eating it too. I think it would work better for me if Rumi was somebody that was like vengeful in some way that was trying to like, you know, you don't understand what you have. I wish that I had your, your looks, your fame, your popularity or whatever. I'm going to show you, or I'm going to, you know, do this to correct you or to mess you up or whatever. And it wasn't just that, well, she's the one who was actually insane. Whereas like, cause I think it really does thoughtfully deal with our main characters break or yeah, we, break. We don't yeah. need Rumi to also have DID. Like the movie has already set up her being tech savvy. It's already set up her intense opposition to people that sexually exploit Mima. It's already established her past as a formerly employed idol, like all of the foreshadowing and character building has been done for Rumi to be the villain and have this be the work of her, again, probably still very mentally unstable mind, but something based in her personality that does not require this DID diagnosis to justify. Like the movie already justified her character taking these actions i think it makes much more sense and like, even, either she is is taking these these actions that the the main character is taking if she's seeing them as undermining her if she is saying like oh i've spent all of this time and effort making this thing for you and you're throwing it away or if she's saying i i could have and should have had this at some point and like I didn't have a me there to do this for you. So I'm going to set you on the right path. Yeah. Yeah. Like even just like, hell, you can still do like body dysphoria and seeing and Rumi still seeing herself as Mima without 
again, the lines of the end being like, oh, the roomy personality is gone. That was a separate personality and it's gone. There was the person who cared about you and the person who did all the killing. And those are two totally separate personalities. I'm like, I don't think that was the best call. Again, like, again, this movie's fantastic. This movie is an incredibly animated, psychologically disturbing what the fuck? Absolutely recommend people see it if you can deal with some very intense imagery. But again, look, this movie gives you a lot to chew on, a lot to discuss. And sometimes that means, you know, you got quibbles with how they execute it, especially when they're trying to execute themes this complex. Yeah, for sure. This is my preamble of being like, I like the movie. I am not shitting on Perfect Blue just because I had issues with specific storytelling decisions. Yeah, I think the biggest problem with Perfect Blue is that it was made in the 90s. And if like it was made with a slightly more 2010s understanding of psychology and a little bit of storytelling shift that's happened since then, I, I think like I would have very little to complain about it. But I think looking at it, even as a relic of its time, it's like, well, there's some stuff that is uncomfortable about this. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I agree. It does suffer from being a product of its time. And again, the whole trying to have the cake needed to, especially with a lot of the conceptual stuff, when it gets conceptual, the cake and eating it question becomes a little too there. It's, it's having its cake and eating it too, and also asking if cake even exists. Yeah, it's like, um, what is cake? I guess we're sort of warming up to this question anyway, but do you guys think this is worth seeing? Should people check it out? Mind yeah. the content? Yes, I mean, look, if you are put off by the content, like, again, you know, the trigger warnings, you know, that there, there are intense rape scenes, you know, that there is fat phobia. There is, again, just very intense mental disturb, you know, psychologically disturbing. But otherwise, you're talking about one of the absolute masters of 20 of animation in the 20th of like anime in the 20th century you're seeing one of like most influential anime films ever made. If that feels fair to say, it is incredible cinematography and it is very, very prescient about where the internet and online fandoms and abuse would go. And this is a movie that, look, I think is going to stick with you for a real long time and give you a lot to chew on. So I definitely recommend it. Yeah, I mean, this is... This is something, this is my first time watching it. And it's honestly, before we started doing this movie or before we started doing this podcast movie, I didn't really know anything about. It's great. It's definitely worth watching. There is, there is some rough stuff to watch. It is, you will feel at some point in the movie, like you have no idea what's happening yeah. and that's fine. It'll come back around. Yeah, um, if you need to know what's going on, don't watch this movie. If you're okay being, I have no control over my life or what I watch, then yeah, fucking you'll, uh, you'll be okay going along for the ride. If you can watch JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, you can watch this. I mean, I it's it's funny because I was going to compare it to Requiem for a Dream, which borrows some stuff from it as well. Requiem for a Dream is much harder to watch. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, if you yeah. have to choose between Requiem for a Dream and Perfect Blue, watch Perfect Blue. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I it's been a while since I've seen it. I think Requiem for a Dream it goes in that column of of movies that like, Oh, yes. Very well made. I liked it. Do not ever want to see it again. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Left me sort of huddled in a mass in the corner after I finished watching it. But I mean, there are life experiences that change us. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to want to do it over and over again. Right. Yeah. 
It's right there, right there with Hereditary for me on a movie that after it, I was like, all right, that was an excellently made film. I will not be watching it again. Yeah. Unless it's for this podcast in either of those cases. So with all that in mind, what do we recommend people check out if they want more movies like this or what do we want them to check out regardless? You know, for another kind of, I guess, psychological horror, I think I've recommended this already in the past, but I'm going to, but something that kind of also had that sense of like main characters kind of losing their grip on reality and it's sometimes being meta in in terms of the medium of film. I'm going to recommend Archive 81. It, again, has a very frustrating cliffhanger and it canceled after one season because that how Netflix do, baby. But that one season is really, really good and really tense and dark and gripping. That is also a podcast. I don't actually know if the podcast finished, so you might find out more about what's supposed to happen in the show before they canceled it if you listen to the podcast. But that is a podcast I started listening to before it was ever a show. What I would recommend is another film by Satoshi Kon, which I've watched recently because I've started doing this now. I've seen most of them now. But with some of the same issues which I've mentioned in this, I would definitely recommend Paprika. It is a really imaginative and well-thought-out movie. It is... I had not seen it until very recently but somebody made the comparison between this and inception the christopher nolan movie as stories about people going into dreams and this is kind of what i like it was what i was hoping inception was going to be because inception is so boring and super beige in its presentation (laughs) of like what people's dreams are like that i just know like Christopher Nolan's movies are as weird and creative as he gets. Like, this is what he dreams like, apparently. It's all in very, like, beige, Chicago blue tones. And it's, like, not not particularly interesting. I wanted something wild and crazy from that movie. What I got something pretty much more wild from was Paprika, which has some uh, some really interesting, fun stuff going on in it. Some of the same, like, stuff that we were kind of hedging on in this one which is like oh this is a this guy is a fat guy that eats all the time and he's extremely fat like comically fat but also he is a person and you should treat one anyway but yeah paprika is worth checking out along with you know millennium actress which is another sort of of these more more serious but also sort of weird and scary sometimes satoshi Kon movies on that i i do want to refer to paranoia agent which is his series which is somewhere between like perfect blue and paprika because you have some pretty intense horror you have a psychological thriller you have some kind of psychedelic shit going on but the paranoia agent i don't know if you can find it but it used to be on tv and it actually has visually diverse characters that aren't being like oh this guy's fat or you know this guy blah like there are humanized characters. There's characters that are not. But if a paranoid agent had any issue, I would say is that it tries to do too much. Apparently um, on Funimation streaming right now. Okay, so yeah, check that out. I remember when it was on Adult Swim. Yeah, I watched it on Adult Swim back in the day. Man, fucking old school Adult Swim. That was yeah. where I was at. Hell yeah. It just like watching Paranoid Agent right next to Inuyasha is a. Is a oh yeah, and then they and then they put on Cowboy Bebop and Wolf's Rain. 
Yeah. I'll say this for that though. Watching real Cowboy Bebop and realizing how much more cursing and suggestive language is in Cowboy Bebop and what's in the Adult Swim version was wild. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also, I know I'm, I'm breaking rules here, but I also just want to shout out to, if you can find it, this is another one that's harder to find than, than Paranoid Agent. There is an anthology film called Memories and Toshikon did a kind of weird space, like literal space opera sequence in that he wrote it. It's called Magnetic Rose. If you can find it, it's called Magnetic Rose. Again, it is incredible. So, and I think Katsuhiro Otomo is it does shit for that too but yeah i don't know where you can get it but it's out there memories is the name of the movie this the satoshi Kon sequence that i am specifically recommending again it is called magnetic rose it is literal space opera and you will find out why all right well i think that does it for us for tonight as for us you can find emily on on the I have a really big social media presence yeah. on uh... <laughs> Yes. As for the rest of us, you can find Emily at Megamoth <laughs> on Twitter and Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and at Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at Ben the Con and on their website at BenConComics.com. You can pick up all of their books. And finally, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jroom 58 and on my website at JeremyWhitley.com where you can check out everything that I write. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, on our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, and on Twitter at Prog Horror Pod. We would love to hear from you. Come share all your thoughts on Perfect Blue with us. We're still trying to figure out what it's even about and what just happened. Speaking of loving to hear from you, we would love if you would rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening to this. Five stars from you helps us find new listeners. Thank you again for joining us. And thank you, as always, to Emily and Ben for joining me. Guys, it's been a ball. This was this was a good one. This was no old. <laughs> good. Oh, this was a nice break from something as terrible as old. God. Absolutely. Well, we will see you all again next time. And until then, stay horrified. Progressively Horrified is created by Jeremy Whitley and produced by me, Alicia Whitley. This episode featured the Horror Squad, Jeremy, Ben, and Emily. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and do not represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. If you like this episode, you can support us on Patreon. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod or by email at ProgressivelyHorrified at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Bye.